Consider the following description of a well-known leader. This is what was written. Again, while his mother lived, he was a compound of good and evil. He was infamous for his cruelty, though he veiled his debaucheries. Finally, he plunged into every wickedness and disgrace when, fear and shame being cast off, he simply indulged his own inclinations. Those are the words of the Roman historian Tacitus. And he wrote those words to describe Tiberius, the man who ruled Rome as Caesar from A.D. 14 to A.D. 37. Tiberius. Keep him in mind as we look together at Luke 20. I think you've turned there already. Luke chapter 20. This morning we will be digging into verses 19 through 26 of this chapter. One of your readings from this past week as we've been moving together through God's word. I pray that God's word, these New Testament readings have been a, an encouragement to you. I pray that you are taking advantage of that. I got a week behind last week. I was completely uh, off kilter. So you know what I did? I, I stood by my bed and I wrote in my notebook and said, uh, Monday through Friday. I usually do one day at a time, but I put Monday through Friday and I just stayed there and did, stood for about half an hour reading five straight chapters and making notes. But I thought, I don't want to miss any of this. I really want to take advantage of it. It didn't take that long, but it was so good. It was so good, especially to read that many chapters when I'm used to doing the one each day uh, and spending time you know, at, at that pace on that to do five. It was a very different thing. So wherever you are in the reading plan, just jump in um, join us for that. Here's one of the passages that you looked at last week. Verses 19 through 26. So I want you to notice how Luke's, what I'm going to do is break this up into a few sections. So I'll read those verses a bit at a time. I want you to notice, first of all, how Luke sets the stage for the rest of the passage by describing what was happening behind the scenes in verses 19 and 20. Take a look with me, if you would, at verses 19 through 20. Let me read. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, Jesus, at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. What parable is that? It's the parable of the wicked tenants. You find that in verses 9 through 18 of this chapter. They perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they, this, this, these spies or the leaders through the spies might catch Jesus in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So let's stop there. Remember where we are in the gospel of Luke. If you've been reading through, then, then you're aware of this progression. 
after a long journey during which he made it clear he was going to Jerusalem, starting in chapter 9. Remember, it says he set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem. And Luke continues to use Jerusalem as that kind of literary device to show you the intention, to show you the flow, the momentum of the story headed to Jerusalem. So after this long journey, he has made it to this city and he's made it clear earlier on, as we talked about on Easter, he made it clear that he was going to the city to suffer, to be killed and to rise again from the dead. So finally, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem in chapter 19. But since Jerusalem is the seat of religious power in Israel, His presence there was further galvanizing his opponents. When he was out in Galilee, when he was out in the hinterlands, in the sticks doing his thing, it wasn't always easy to know what he was saying and doing and little little pockets of of Pharisees or, or scribes or Sadducees might hear him. But now he's in Jerusalem once again. And the momentum has built, built up over time. And they are ready. They are ready for him. Um, since Jerusalem was the seat of power, they've come together. And look at what Luke tells us at the end of the previous chapter. It may be on the same page. Maybe flip a page back to chapter 19, verses 47 and 48. This is what we learn about the agenda of the opponents of Jesus. 9, 47 and 48. And Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. Here he is in Jerusalem. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Wow. Seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Do you remember in chapter 20 at the end of verse 19? What did it say? It said they feared the people. Right? They feared the people. They wanted to lay hands on him at that very hour, but they feared the people. So in light of this, chapter 19, verses 47 through 48, in light of all of this, chapter 20 describes how they proceeded in terms of ensnaring him, trapping him. First, they challenge his authority in the opening verses of this chapter, verses 1 through 8. But here they have sent, we could call them secret agents. Secret agents who will, verse 20, pretend to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said. But what exactly does that mean? Uh, Catch him how? Well, the remainder of the verse partially answers that question. They wanted to catch him in something he said... So they could do what? Deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. That is the Roman governor. So let's continue by looking at that trap. We've set the stage now. We know a little bit about what's happening behind the scenes. Look with me at verses 21 and 22. We're looking at how they devise to catch Jesus. We see them laying out this trap in these next verse two verses. Verse 21, so they asked him, these secret agents, they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but
but truly teach the way of God. Boy, they are laying it on thick, aren't they? Woo, it is like the thickest, like creamy butter made with like that whole milk or whatever, the cream. It's just thick on there. You speak and teach rightly and you show no partiality. I love your hair. What are you doing with the robes these days? You are so awesome. It's amazing. And, and by the way, you truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? This is where the special effects like the scratching record or the squealing breaks. This is where it would come in right at this moment. So hold on a minute. How is this question a trap? How is it a trap? Well, in principle, it's a trap for the same reason it would be a trap today. Depending on how a Christian leader answers a politically charged question, he or she would invariably be demonized by any number of factions inside and outside the church. This is not a hypothetical, right? If you're on Twitter like me, you know this is par for the course. This is just the way that it is today. That's why it's a trap. So the factions who didn't like the answer that was given like rabid dogs. And without a doubt, the question that we read here in verse 22 was that kind of question. It was a politically charged question in first century Roman occupied Israel. Think about the ways the religious leaders hoped that Jesus would respond to that question. First, in light of verse 20, they were hoping Jesus would answer, no, it is not lawful to give tribute to Caesar. Now, the word lawful, what does that mean? Well, lawful would be in reference to the law of God. Look at verse 21. They were talking about the way of God, right? You teach the way of God rightly. Act, uh, act, you know, you truly teach the way of God. So that's the reference here. Is it lawful in the eyes of God to give tribute? They were hoping he would say, no, it's not lawful to give tribute to Caesar. So if Jesus answered this way, he would be saying something like, no, you should not give money that God has given to you to an evil, idolatrous, cruel and corrupt Gentile entity like the Roman government and self deifying leaders like Caesar. Come on, we are God's people. Any support you give them simply enables these anti-God forces and it betrays your lack of faith. Now, if Jesus had answered that way, these religious leaders could then build a case, couldn't they? They could build a case before their Roman overlords that Jesus was a political threat. Jesus was a political threat, an anti-Roman messianic pretender who was telling people not to pay their taxes to the empire. The sad thing is that when you get to chapter 23, just three chapters later, that's exactly one of the things they say. That he taught the people not to pay their taxes. You're gonna see, you're gonna see how troubling that is when we keep going here, right? So they hoped that he'd answer with a no. Then they could trap him, right? Politically. 
Second, Jesus also might answer the question in verse 22 in this way. Yes, it is lawful for you to give tribute to Caesar. Would that response frustrate the plans of the religious leaders? Well, it might not, you know, it might not help them in terms of collusion with the Roman authorities, but it would help them with the crowds. Remember what we heard about the crowds already from chapter 20 and chapter 19? Luke Luke 19, verse 48. But the Jewish leaders did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. If Jesus were to, to declare simply and publicly that it was right to pay taxes to these Gentile occupiers, that that's what you should do, then he would surely lose a lot of popular support from the Jewish people. A lot of people hoped he, as the son of David, would oust the Roman occupiers, not support their oppressive taxation policies and their corrupt taxation practices. That's not why they were looking to Jesus. So collusion with the authorities, if he said no, and if he said yes then bringing him down a number of notches in the eyes of the people, siphoning off popular support for Jesus. So regardless of whether Jesus answered yes or no, the Jewish religious leaders believed this trap would, in one way or another, help them weaken his influence and ultimately to destroy him, as we heard earlier. But if we continue, look at what Luke goes on to tell us about this trap. Verses 23 through 26. But he perceived their craftiness. He perceived their trickery. And he said to them, show me a denarius. I was going to bring a denarius for you, but I, but I forgot it. But I've got two in my office. And they, in fact, could be the very ones that Jesus was handling. We have no idea. But they are Tiberian denarii. They're only about this big. They're really small. But he said, show me a denarius. A denarius was the average of a, a, of a day's wage for a laborer in the first century. So whatever you might make in a day, that was basically it. Basically like a $100 bill. Let's call it that. A $100 bill in that time. Jesus says, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render Renders a weird word. This word, when it appears in the Gospel of Luke, a number of other times, it's always translated as pay, usually. Pay. Has to do with owing somebody a debt. Pay to Caesar. Give to Caesar. Render to Caesar. Pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not in the press, able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. So, did Jesus actually give them a yes or no answer? Yeah, he did. He did. His answer was yes. His answer was yes. But he qualified his answer in such a way that it made it very hard for them to argue against his logic. Especially when they carried that currency in their own money bags. They had it on them. 
It was right there. <laughs> How principled were these people? They're, they're using this money. They can, they can produce a coin for him right away. So yes, he was saying, if it's Caesar's coin, just give it back to Caesar. But there's more to Christ's response here. We learn here from his answer, given the context, that there are two spheres of authority in which we move as political and spiritual beings. Two spheres of authority. That is, we need to recognize both civil authority and spiritual authority. And as Jesus explains here, some things belong to the sphere of Caesar and some things belong to the sphere of God. But wait a minute. If that's true, does it undermine the idea that God is the king of all creation? Does it undermine that idea? Uh, the, the, the one who is sovereign over all the nations of the earth. L- listen to Psalm chapter 47. Take a look at it here. Psalm 47, 7 and 8 says this. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. And that's not unique, is it, in the Old Testament? These kinds of statements. Is Jesus contradicting this idea? Not at all. He's not. It would not have been difficult for this Jewish audience to grasp the idea that God himself has established these spheres of authority. He's the one who has put these spheres in place. For they knew passages like, take a look, Daniel 4.32 That tells us the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's our God. That's our sovereign God. So his listeners, especially those Jewish leaders, his listeners would have known and they should have remembered that human rulers had a legitimate function in God's economy and that Rome wasn't the first Gentile idol worshiping corrupt government to have power over them as God's people. And like the Babylonians or the Persians earlier in their history, they would have known and should have remembered how God was using those political entities to accomplish his sovereign purposes, specifically to discipline his people, even to shelter his people, even to eventually bless his people. Therefore, according to Jesus, whatever is owed to human rulers as those operating in their unique sphere of authority, then give it. Pay it. Render it. And whatever is owed to God as the one operating in His unique sphere of authority, then give it. Pay it. Render it. Paul would later affirm this teaching in a number of passages including most famously Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. After confirming this, that whoever resists the governing authorities resists what God has appointed, verse 2, 
He concludes with the same application as Jesus in Romans 13, verse 7. What does he say? Take a look. He says this. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. The Apostle Peter also affirms this perspective, this posture in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, if you have a chance to look at that as well. Now, think about it. Think about it. The response of Jesus here was meant as a correction. Yes, it was an answer, but it was a correction as well. It was a, it was a meant to correct a kind of confusion, right? What exactly was being confused? The spheres of authority. These spheres of authority were being confused. That was the very thing Christ was clarifying for his listeners. Confusing these spheres of authority was like the spring in the mousetrap. If it was this mechanism that powered the trap laid by the religious leaders. But notice how Jesus handled this trap. What did he do? He simply dismantled it. That's how he got out of the trap. He just dismantled the trap. He just took it apart and said, no, this doesn't go with this. (laughs) This is wrong. While it certainly isn't something new, today the church is being tested in new ways by this very same confusion. This same confusion. In light of the two spheres mentioned here, We need to, as followers of Jesus, as his disciples, as believers, we need to think about and talk about the two ways, two ways that we can avoid this kind of confusion. Because we're often tempted to do so by the the culture around us. How do we avoid, in light of the two spheres, how do we avoid this confusion and walk in the truth of God's word? Let me give you two spheres Two encouragements, two clarifications. Take a look. First of all, Christians are still called to honor governing authorities even when those governing are not honorable. Let me say that again. Christians are still called to honor governing authorities even when those governing are not honorable. You heard about Tiberius in the opening statement today, right? Tiberius was in large part not an honorable man, not at all, especially by God's standards. So many other, and so many other Roman leaders and Roman policies were equally dishonorable if you look back in history. But their positions, these rulers, their offices, and their policies in a generic sense were honorable in that they fulfilled God's own purpose for human governments. And yet, how many Christians today are fixated on who and what is dishonorable in Caesar's realm rather than on the importance and wise ways we can honor governing authorities? 
Seems like there's quite an imbalance in that respect. I think many of these individuals today who, who, who live in that imbalance, they imagine that Jesus was regularly decrying moral and sexual compromise among the Romans and their leaders, that he was regularly going against systemic Roman injustices, that he was going against imperial economic oppression and class inequities in the empire, that he was railing against unjust military campaigns, that he was railing against the consistent coarsening of Roman culture. I think that's how they picture him. I think they almost expect to read about such things, not because the New Testament gives us any indication that Jesus ever focused on such issues, but because that's how they themselves judge the value and virtue of genuine faith in today's world. That's their shibboleth. Go look up that reference. But even here in Luke 20, Jesus does not get on his soapbox. Jesus does not take pot shots at the Roman government or its leaders. He simply says this concerning Roman rule. Pay your taxes. That's his whole word. Pay your taxes. Do we live today in a different time and place? Absolutely. Do we live under a different political system? Yes, we do. But as followers of Jesus, brothers and sisters, we need to be extremely careful that our conversations, that our criticisms, that our activism, that our rants and tirades and posts do not serve to undermine the government offices and institution, institutions that serve our God's purposes no matter which party is in power. It doesn't honor God to burn the whole house down just because there are roaches in the kitchen and termites in the walls. We honor God when we honor Caesar as Caesar. When we honor him in his sphere. Number two. Number two, take a look. Two spheres, number two. Regardless of the political climate, Christians are called to pledge their ultimate allegiance to God alone. To God alone. Though some would be eager for me to talk more about Caesar or about this president or that president, that's not the emphasis here. The emphasis in this passage has to be on the second half of Jesus' answer. That's what Jesus is leading to. That's what he wants to emphasize for these guys. Yes, he's answering their little silly trap question, right? Right, their politically fraught question. Yes, he's answering that, but he's directing them in his last statement to the most important point. And he's doing that for us this morning. Verse 25, he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Think about the context here. Think about the context here. This will help us understand this statement. Think about the scene in Luke 20, 19 through 26. These religious leaders are hoping to trap Jesus in order to do what? 
Verse 20. Verse 20, do you see it? So as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. <laughs> do you see what's happening here? They want to implicate, they want Jesus to implicate himself politically so they can use political means to accomplish what they believe to be godly ends. Do you see that? Remember, these men are leaders among God's people. And some might say, well, Pastor Bryce, Jesus was often, was often critical of those in power. He often spoke truth to those in power. But friends, he never spoke truth in, to power in terms of truth to those who were in a political position, even if they were, he always went after these men because they were in a pastoral position. That's how he critiqued them. He didn't critique them as political entities. He critiqued them as pastoral failures. It was their job to care for the people of God. It was their job to love the lost. It was their job to draw in and watch over, to oversee God's people. That's why he critiqued them. That's why he went after them. These men are leaders among God's people. But instead of looking to God, these men are doing what? They're looking to human leaders for a human solution to what they seem to believe is the most pressing threat. Think about this. How many professing believers today are looking to human leaders for a human solution to what they seem to believe is the most pressing threat? How many today are driven by today's political priorities to adopt today's political antagonism? How many are discipled far more regularly by CNN or Fox News than they are by the Word of God? Again, Jesus doesn't stop after describing a right response to the Roman ruler. No, he keeps going. He points us to the ruler over all things. He points us to God. And what do we owe to God? We owe Him our ultimate allegiance. We owe Him our deepest trust. We owe Him our highest praise. We owe Him our greatest efforts. We owe Him our purest passions. It should really trouble us that many Christians today seem to be far more passionate to get far more defensive, to be far, who invest far more, are far, far more willing to engage with others about political issues instead of gospel issues. That should trouble us deeply. And for some, what spiritual interests they have seem to be informed mainly by their political interests instead of the other way around. And it should be the other way around. That's what Jesus is telling us, right? We have an obligation to operate within the sphere of Caesar. There's a way that we glorify God when we're involved in the sphere of Caesar. Here it's paying taxes. For us, it could be any number of things. But we can't get those things turned around. 
Brothers and sisters, friends, God has given us a passage and he encourages us through this passage. He says, don't confuse these spheres. Be careful about not confusing these spheres. We need to trust that God is sovereign over both of them, don't we? He is sovereign over both of them. Yes, I absolutely understand. I feel the same way. It can be very hard to know how to navigate today's political and cultural waters as followers of Jesus, as those who want to do good, good, as those who love justice, who want to glorify God and want Him to be known. We want people to be blessed. It's extremely difficult. It's very hard. I don't have all the answers. I don't think anybody has all the answers. We know the one who has the answers he's given us here. So we understand that. We know it's hard. But what we have to do is we need to keep the gospel front and center. Doing that on a personal level, on a daily level. Because you know what happens when we do that? When we do that, it reminds us every single day about what is in fact the most pressing threat to our nation to our state, to our community, the most pressing threat to our schools and our military and our economy, the most pressing threat to our climate and our borders and our families and our future. The most pressing threat to all of these things and to you personally every day is something no policy or politician could ever reform. This threat requires not regulations, but a redeemer. Take a look. Beautiful verse. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's good news. That's good news. If you recognize and you sense the daily threat of sin in your life, the most pressing threat of sin in your life and the lives of those around you, and it's insidious, poisonous work all around us in our world, you recognize that as absolutely good news, the best, the best news. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Did he come to condemn? No. Son of man did not come into the world to judge the world. He didn't come into the world to, 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 to condemn the world. He came in the world to save the world. Came into the world to save the world. John chapter 3 tells us. Our most pressing threat is that from which only Jesus can save us. Amen? Our most pressing threat is that through which only Jesus can lead us. Amen? One day we will no longer render to any Caesar because no Caesar will remain. Amen? Gone. Done with. The only thing that will exist is the good government of God's kingdom. You should long for that day. We should yearn for that day because it will be so good. And I, and I want to just give you another bit of encouragement, brothers and sisters, in light of this word. When we aren't longing for the good government of God's kingdom above everything else. Remember what I said? What does God deserve? He, we, he, he, what do we owe him? We owe him our ultimate allegiance, our deepest trust, our highest praise, our greatest efforts, our purest passions. 
But when we get these spheres confused, friends, it is an exhausting path. It's an exhausting train to be on. Right? When you're, when you're looking to government to give you what only God can give you, when you're missing that perspective, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. It's like a terrible roller coaster ride every morning, whiplash. God says to you this morning, time to disembark. Go ahead and get off of that. I have good things for you. Solid things, beautiful things, strong things, strong things. So let us through the gospel, brothers and sisters, live daily in that hope so that in both spheres, when we do that, we will be able to glorify the King of Kings. Let's pray. Would you pray with me?